Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History. If the last episode was an episode dedicated to how the government's plan went terribly wrong, well, then this episode will be dedicated to how the government's new plan also goes terribly wrong. Titled The Revolt of the Parlements, those pesky noble courts which Louis XVI reinstated at the start of his reign are about to cause their sponsor a whole lot of pain. With the Assembly of Notables having transformed itself into an assembly of rebels, it's the Parlement's turn to make life difficult for the government. So, without further ado, let's begin. Welcome to Grey History. Episode 6, The Revolt of the Parlements. If I owned the rights to Queen's Another One Bites the Dust, I might have started this episode playing the chorus of that song. The reason being that on the 9th of April, 1787, another one did bite the dust. Another controller general, that is. Having had his own assembly of notables turn against him, Cologne's position was untenable. The result was that the king found himself with neither a minister nor a plan. It wasn't the first time King Louis XVI found himself without someone leading the government's finances. In the 13 years of his reign, he had had eight controller generals or equivalents. Cologne, while quite different from the likes of Turgot or Necker, was just another reform-minded minister who fell afoul of court politics and political realities. Yet, this time was different. Previously, there had been no bankruptcy looming on the horizon, and previously there had not been an assembly of notables kicking up one hell of an absolute storm. What was the poor king to do? Initially, the king promoted Michel Bovard de Fecure, a capable statesman, yet one tarnished by his association with Cologne and his general public standing. The Assembly of Notables would have none of it. They knew the replacement they wanted, and tirelessly lobbied for him to be appointed they did. Foucault would be the Controller General for less than a month. Make that nine Controller Generals in less than 13 years. Another one bit the dust. The Notables wanted the Archbishop of Toulouse, Etienne Charles de Lemaine de Brienne, Brienne had in essence become the leader of the opposition during Cologne's attempts to push through his reforms through the Assembly of Notables. In fact, the publication Correspondence Secretaire described him as such in their 9th March edition. You may remember Brienne from the last episode. He was the notable who proclaimed that the danger was not so great when Cologne warned that inaction regarding the impending bankruptcy endangered the very foundations of the state. Yes. You heard right. According to Brienne, just weeks before becoming Controller General, the danger the bankruptcy presented was not that great. So, 
With Brienne, we're either dealing with a political mastermind who knew how to bring down his chief political opponent so that he could take his job, or we are dealing with an individual who had no comprehension of how big this problem really was. I'll let you decide which one. Having led the Rebellion of the Notables, Brienne thought he would be able to crush it, or, perhaps more realistically, compromise with it. Promoted not to the position of Controller General, but instead to the role of President of the Royal Council of Finances, Brienne hit the ground running. Seeking to win favour with the rebels and seize the initiative, Brienne opened up the books for inspection. Having convinced the notables that there was actually a bankruptcy to avoid, Brienne gave in to several demands, including distinguishing orders in the proposed provincial assemblies. The notables, however, continued to demand more concessions, concessions that the king was in no mood to make. These concessions included demands like establishing an independent annual audit of the nation's finances. Cologne had refused to even open the books, and the notables were now demanding much more than that. They were demanding complete and continuous transparency, something that was nothing but toxic to the king's authority and the king's ideas of absolute monarchy. With progress again grinding to a halt, the notables proclaimed that they had no constitutional power, which of course they didn't, and then redoubled their efforts to force a summoning of the Estates General. Brienne and the King, accepting defeat, dismissed the Assembly on the 25th of May, some three months since Cologne had opened it. So, what next? With the Notables dismissed, Brienne found himself in the same position as Cologne had been just months before, a choice between two pretty bad options. Push the reforms through the Parlements, or summon an Estates General. Interestingly, though, the one Brienne preferred was not the one he chose. In the month or so between Cologne's dismissal and his appointment as President of the Royal Council of Finances, Brienne had proposed to the King a radical solution on April the 23rd. Having already foiled Cologne's reform agenda, this radical solution went down like a lead balloon with the King and Queen. The King's response to this two-point plan was hostile, to say the least. What? You believe we are lost? The Estates General? Oh, you can overthrow state and royalty. Do whatever you like, except those two things. Reforms, reduction of expenditure. The Queen and I are willing and ready. But for pity's sake, do not insist upon either Monsieur Necker or the Estates General. That's right. Brienne suggested summoning the Estates General and recalling Jacques Necker. It's ironic that the king proclaims that he would be willing to overthrow state and royalty to avoid these two outcomes. It's ironic because state and royalty will be overthrown and both Monsieur Necker and the Estates General will be summoned regardless. Brienne's original suggestions to the king were by no means poor ones. Necker and the Estates General were indeed what the people and parlements were clamouring for, and the dispersing notables only made this worse. Historian Thomas Carlyle notes that as the notables returned home, their accounts of recent months only added fuel to the fire. Thus then, the notables have returned home, carrying to all quarters of France such notions of deficit, decrepitude, distraction, and that the Estates General will cure it. Not only cure it, but kill it. To some members of the French public, an Estates General was the apparent and obvious solution. To the government, however, it was out of the question. The king would have none of it. Brienne, therefore, was left with only one path to take. He would have to take the fight to the Paris Parlement. To the opponent, Cologne was deliberately trying to avoid when he summoned the Assembly of Notables. 
to an opponent that was well-versed in marshalling public opinion and an expert in tearing shreds off the monarchy. Despite the Parlement's historic hostility towards the monarchy, its opposition to Brienne and his reform package was by no means guaranteed. The ranks of the Paris Parlement in particular were riddled with division over how to tackle the current crisis. The Paris Parlement, leading all the courts, as it usually did, could be divided into two broad camps. The first camp preached steadfast opposition towards the government's agenda, and the second camp preached compromise. The latter was relatively united, the former was anything but. Amongst those who preached opposition in an effort to have an Estates General summoned, two distinct factions can be found. Firstly, there were the Conservatives, led by a capable orator by the name of Dies Premenil. The Conservatives saw the Estates General as a vehicle which the aristocracy could use to control the levers of power. Sitting in its traditional format, the first and second estates, dominated by the nobility, would outvote the third estate two to one, and thus the Estates General represented a constitutional way for the nobility to take power away from the monarch without passing it on to the common people. The motives of the Conservatives could not be more different to the other key faction within the obstructionist wing of the Paris Parlement. If the first group were the Conservatives, the second group were the Radicals. Led by a man named Dupont, this faction saw the Estates General as a means to create a truly national chamber of representative government. To do this, the Radicals would seek to fundamentally change the format of the Estates General once it was summoned by the King. Instead of 300 representatives for each estate, and the estates themselves voting in unified blocks, the Radicals believed individual members should have their own votes. One head, one vote. Furthermore, they also believed that the third estate, representing roughly 98% of the population, should have their number of delegates doubled. With each delegate having their own vote, and with the third's representation doubled, the power dynamics of the body would be changed considerably. The delegates of the third would be joined by liberally-minded nobles and non-noble clergy to create a majority in a unified chamber. This voting bloc would overcome the conservative nobility of the first and second orders and usher in an era of truly constitutional and representative government. In short, the radicals sought to completely upend the traditional power dynamics of the body by completely upending its traditional structure. The idea was not so outrageous. It was briefly considered by Brienne when he dismissed the Assembly of Notables in May, and Cologne had proposed no distinction of order in his provincial assemblies. What this meant, however, was that opposition within the Parlement was fundamentally divided. The Conservatives and the Radicals could act as one while the goal was summoning the Estates General, but if they succeeded, the Conservatives and Radicals would split immediately once attention turned to the body's composition. For the moment, however, the two factions were aligned. Dies Premenil and Dupont smelt blood in the water as the monarchy pleaded for financial reforms to be undertaken to avoid bankruptcy. Absolutism was flailing, helpless and vulnerable, and both men believed now was the time to push for an Estates General. The moderates within the Paris Parlement, however, they held a very different view. They did not perceive the current crisis as the dying breaths of absolute monarchy. No, quite the opposite. They perceived instead the current crisis as the death of their own Parlements. The moderates reasoned that one of two outcomes would occur from continuous opposition to the crown. Either the king would find the political capital to suppress the parlements, like Louis XV had done in 1771, or alternatively, an estates general would be called. If the former happened, the moderates reasoned that no future king would be foolish enough to reinstate the parlements in the future. Louis XV had suppressed them, Louis XVI had recalled them only to suppress them again. 
a future Louis XVII would have no appetite for bringing the rebellious courts back. A baby can throw the toys out of the cot only so many times before the toys are confiscated completely. Alternatively, if the Parlement got their way and an estate general was summoned, the moderates believed this outcome was equally disastrous. Why? Well, the moderates reasoned that what made the Parlement so popular was their ability to act as defenders of the people, or at least to portray themselves as the virtuous counterbalance to royal absolutism and unrestrained tyranny. That responsibility, and the popularity that came with it, could hypothetically be transferred to the Estates General should it be summoned. Once that occurred, the Parlements would be vulnerable. A popular Estates General could very well adopt a reformist agenda. What if the reformist body sought to abolish the privileges the Parlements had safeguarded for so long? What if the Estates General decided to reform a clearly unenlightened judicial system by demoting or outright abolishing the Parlements? What if the Parlements now, robbed of their popularity, robbed of their defence, were helpless to defend themselves against a truly legitimate body that could claim to represent the people's will and enlightened government? A body which had been created through their obstruction. While the Conservatives saw the Estates General as a means to entrench aristocratic privilege, the Moderates feared what would occur if the Radicals got their way and a reformed body was let loose upon the old regime. Thus, the Moderates saw relentless opposition as a recipe for disaster, one that resulted in either suppression, replacement, or something far, far worse than either of those two things. Chaos. The anarchy that bankruptcy could bring was not lost on everyone, Neither was the dangerous Pandora's box that constitutional government would open. As one judge warned his colleagues, Monsieurs, this is not a game for children. The first time that France sees an estates general, she will also see a terrible revolution. The result of all these divisions was that opposition to Brienne's reforms were by no means guaranteed once they hit the Paris Parlement. Indeed, any serious pushback from the Paris Parlement failed to materialise in the first couple of weeks. The internal grain trade was liberated, reforms to the corvée approved, and the provincial assemblies, despite all the protests from the notables around their constitutional legality, were also agreed upon. But the moment the government tried to tackle thornier issues, the sunshine and rainbows quickly disappeared. The Parlement rejected Brienne's stamp tax on the 2nd of July, and the land tax just a couple of weeks later. To make matters worse for the government, the genie of public opinion was running amok. Unlike the defiant stance undertaken by the notables, the vocal obstruction undertaken by the Parlement was the very definition of public. The obstructionist judges were rebelling in Paris, not Versailles, and for the first time, these rebellious scenes were playing out in front of an audience. As Dies Premenil, as Duport, and as other orators lampooned the monarchy and its agenda, they were doing so with hundreds of ordinary people watching. The orators were playing to a crowd. They were playing to an audience. Politics was becoming theatre. And, while important now, this merger of the political and the theatrical would become even more important as the revolution progressed. To make matters worse for the government, the theatrics of opposition were being recorded for a wider audience than those that immediately witnessed it. With some judges defiantly fighting the government's reforms, the highly visible judicial revolt was being covered by every journal, every leaflet, every pamphlet, every newspaper in Paris and indeed the country. 
Censorship had fallen by the wayside in recent months, and the common people who were originally rooting for the notables were now rooting for their successor in the opposition camp, the Paris Parlement. Obstructing the monarchy, officially in the name of good government, was proving to be a very popular position. Popular, but not permanent. The government was running out of time, and so it decided to act. The king played his trump card. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What trump card, you ask? Well, Louis could call something known as a lit de justice. A lit de justice was essentially a formal sitting of the Parlement where the king ordered the Parlement to register his reforms. On the 6th of August, 1787, six months after Cologne first summoned the Assembly of Notables, that's exactly what happened. With bankruptcy ever closer and with the public peace increasingly shaken, the absolute monarch finally did something akin to reigning absolutely. Unilaterally, Louis moved to quash the rebellion of the courts, the same courts he foolishly reinstated at the beginning of his reign. The Paris Parlement, having been summoned on the 6th of August to Versailles, had no choice but to comply. The king had made his will known, and though the Parlement protested to the bitter end, their hands were tied. The judges had no legal authority to stop the king from registering both his land tax and his stamp tax. Or perhaps I should say, they had no legal authority to stop the king's representatives. The king himself was, well, let's say, preoccupied. A lit de justice was a very formal event, and because it was a very formal event, Louis XVI was sitting on a throne in a grand canopy. A very comfortable canopy. And the king, in his very comfortable canopy, at this very formal event, had had a very busy day. Sure, the members of the Parlement had too. They had just been ferried to Versailles in some 60 carriages earlier that morning, making them even more agitated than usual. But the king, well, the king's a very busy man, and he probably had a very grand lunch before a great big hunt. The result was that the king was very, very tired. So tired that the king fell asleep. That's right. The king fell asleep. Louis XVI fell asleep just as his ministers informed the irritated and disgruntled judges that they were being forced to register the government's controversial reforms. For a monarch who was increasingly depicted by the underground press as an incompetent idiotic fool, one who could not even please his own foreign mean-spirited wife, falling asleep during one of the most controversial events of his reign was a PR disaster. If Nero fiddled while Rome burned, Louis snored while France was set alight. Good government never looked so good. At first, it looked like the judicial rebellion had been crushed. It should have been. That was the whole point of a lit de justice. After one last objection by the Paris Parlement's president, in which he proclaimed that the remedy for the nation was calling in a state journal, the taxes had been successfully registered. However, despite defeat at Versailles, the rebellious judges were far from defeated upon their return to Paris. As the Parlement's members made their way back to the city, the common people rushed to express their support. 
The judges were applauded, cheered, celebrated as they re-entered Paris. Their opposition to the bitter end had won them even more public admiration. A bookseller by the name of Hardy wrote in his diary about the scenes at Versailles, scenes that were replicated when they returned to Paris. The people were gathered around the vehicles in the courtyard of the chateau, and as the members of the Parlement were leaving, the people were said to have yelled out to them, Surely you will right all the wrong that has just been done to us here. The cries of the people and the snores of the king sounded like a call to arms for some members of the Paris Parlement. It sounded like the drums of war. War with the crown. And so it was declared. Both the conservative and radical factions re-embraced their obstructionist positions and dared the government to do something about it. The conservatives struck first. The day after the lit de justice, D'Espremenil declared that the registration of the edicts had been illegal, reaffirming the belief that only the Estates General had the legal authority to levy permanent taxes. The constitutional principle of the French monarchy was that taxes should be consented to by those who had to bear them. Sound familiar, doesn't it? No taxation without representation. The idea had existed in France for some time, but its prominence and re-emergence in the public mind illustrates yet another way that the American Revolution was influencing French society and debate. Not to be outdone by D.S. Premenil and the Conservatives, the Radicals promptly jumped on the anti-Crown bandwagon too. Dupont helped lead an attack on Cologne, opening criminal proceedings against the monarchy's former controller-general on August the 10th. The attack was not so much on Cologne, who had fled the country to England, but on his former employer and supporter, the monarch himself. The Paris Parlement was picking an increasingly public battle with the king, and they seemed to be winning. If the judges were the officer corps of this conflict with the crown, the common soldiers were the people of Paris, and they were following their orders without question. Government posters were torn from their place, soldiers and law enforcement officials were being heckled and harassed in the streets, effigies of leading ministers were being burnt in public places in a show of defiance to the Crown and of solidarity with the heroic judges. As the days went on, after the failed lit to justice, Paris was on the verge of outright revolt. Something had to be done. And on the night of the 14th-15th, something was done. The King exiled the Paris Parlement to Troyes. The exile was just the start of a government crackdown that was swift and forceful. All nests of opposition within the capital were seized or suppressed. The Palais de Justice was locked up by the authorities on the 17th, followed by the seizure of printing presses, the intimidation of journalists and the closure of political clubs. The repression was real. Not even the chess clubs escaped closure as the authorities attempted to quell the increasingly vocal and restless opposition. Not for the first time in human history, repression merely acted as petrol for the flames of discontent. Even with the parliament now exiled in Troyes, the situation continued to deteriorate for the government. Historian Genito Salvamini recalls what follows. This was only adding fuel to the flames. In the streets of Paris, the Comte Artois, the king's brother, was met by catcalls, and the names of the queen and members of the Polignac family were the subject of lampoons and bitter denouncement. Every provincial parlement suspended registration of decrees and demanded a meeting of the Estates General. At Troyes, deputations flocked in from all sides. A stream of addresses congratulated the fathers of the country on their heroism and demanded the establishment of the Estates General, now the watchword of resistance. Historian Charlie Matthews describes the exile like this. 
The exile of the Paris Parlement was followed by resolutions of all the provincial parlements calling for the Estates General and complaining bitterly against the present helplessness of the one body having even a semblance of constitutional check upon the extravagance and violence of the court. And this universal outcry, coupled with the needs of funds, compelled Brienne to patch up a bargain with the Paris Parlement. The actions against the Parlements, the self-styled defenders of the people, had indeed made things much worse. Public pressure, and more importantly, the impending bankruptcy, was forcing the monarchy's hand. Time was not on the government's side. With repression having only crystallised the Parlement's popularity, the monarchy had no option but to set up a negotiating table. However, the government weren't the only ones increasingly in a mood to negotiate. Neither historian Matthews nor Salvamini points out that the Paris Parlement were potentially being forced to negotiate in table themselves. And here is where it gets a little grey. Here is where a potential factor at play is often missed in the accounts of the events of the autumn of 1787, one that I subscribe to, although in moderation. It is argued by some that while exiled in Troyes, the radical and conservative factions within the Parlement were seeing their power wane. The moderates, who had always preached compromise, were on the rise. They were on the rise for a few reasons. Firstly, the violent unrest which had unfolded in Paris over recent months had spooked some previously defiant judges into cooperation. The judges might have wanted an Estates General summoned immediately, but not if that meant riots and mob violence in their local streets. Secondly, and more importantly, the Crown was outflanking them. The Crown had been busily installing and opening the provincial assemblies that had been agreed to some months before. These assemblies were doing exactly what the moderates in the Paris Parlement had feared the Estates General would do. The assemblies were replacing the Parlement as the true defenders of the people. They were successfully casting themselves as the real protectors of the innocent, the real champions of the downtrodden. Filled with members of the bourgeoisie, the claim of the assemblies to be more representative for the common people looked, smelt, felt, legitimate. The result was that they were becoming quite the effective weapon at weakening the Parlement's claim to be acting in the interests of the people. After all, only a small subset of the Paris Parlement, the radicals led by Duport, could realistically make that case. Adding power to the Crown's strategic manoeuvre, these assemblies were often fooled by members of the bourgeoisie who had come from the lower levels of the legal profession. In other words, men who had scores to settle with the noble-dominated parlements who had long stifled their careers due to their lack of nobility. Packed with bourgeoisie lawyers with scores to settle and nobles hand-picked by the authorities, the provincial assemblies vocally embraced a pro-monarchy tone for all to hear. Thus, finally, the Crown was scoring some solid wins in the campaign for public opinion. Historian Simon Sharma sums up the situation in which he believes helped to bring the Paris Parlement to the negotiating table. By stressing the social equity of the work of tax assessment and by co-opting personnel who might have been expected to belong to the parlementaire camp, the government was trying to show that the reforms were popular rather than bureaucratic, and its efforts were by no means wasted. During the autumn, all the evidence suggests that the provincial assemblies did in fact begin their work in earnest, and that the parliamentaire protests became desultory and ineffective, and in this development may have prompted a more conciliatory attitude in the Court of Peers in Paris. By mid-November, a compromise between the Crown and the courts had been reached. The government would drop the controversial land and stamp taxes, and perhaps most importantly, the government agreed to call an Estates General in five years' time. 
In return, the Paris Parlement would consent to new loans and a revamped Vantiem tax. A revamped what tax, you ask? Well, good question. What we've been talking about so far is land taxes and stamp taxes, and now we're suddenly talking about some difficult, hard-to-pronounce form of income tax. If you presumed that most members of the first and second estate happen to be avoiding said income tax, well, you're right on the money. You presumed correctly. If you presumed that such a form of taxation would be woefully insufficient to handle the current crisis, well, bam, you've done it again. That's correct as well. If you presumed, furthermore, that the government had secured a bad deal, in fact, no, a shocking deal, well, that's 343. Without the land or the stamp taxes, the monarchy's key reforms were essentially dead. Everything else was tinkering at the edges. All that Cologne and Brienne had strived to achieve had come to nothing. The government took the deal it could, but let's not be mistaken, it was a pretty bad deal. The only alternative was an immediate Estates General, a proposal the King still vehemently resisted. And so, the deal was done. Or, so the government thought. Brienne moved quickly to crystallise the noob deal between the Parlement and the government. Time was not on his side. The obstructionist factions within the Parlement were by no means on board with this compromise plan. Dies Premier Conservatives and Dupour's Radicals were both outraged by an Estates General that would not be summoned for another five years. They saw the promise for what it was. Empty. The government was playing for time. Brienne was clearly betting that if this whole mess could be over within five years, then an Estates General wouldn't actually have to be called, or at least it would be rendered unimportant. With no crisis to exploit, with no bankruptcy on the horizon, the body, if it was summoned at all, would be unable to blackmail the Crown into making any sort of permanent concession. Fearing a neutered Estates General, the Radicals and the Conservatives within the Parlement began a campaign to derail the deal that the Moderates had brokered. In response, Brienne sought to solidify the agreement with a séance royale. A séance royale, or a royal session, was unlike the lit to justice back in August. A royal session was a far more informal assembly, an assembly where opinions could be given freely, one where the king did not just simply tell the Parlement to register his laws. The idea was that, after some debate, the Parlement would voluntarily register the agreement and the whole crisis of 1787 would be put to an end. Thus, on the 19th of November, with the king and the royal ministry present, the Parlement began to debate. Have you ever been conducting a group assignment? be it at school, uni, or in the workplace, and a team member goes rogue. Like, completely, utterly, off-the-reservation rogue. It's a real pain. It's even worse, though, when the project isn't a written one and instead a presentation. If someone goes rogue in a presentation, you can't really rope them back in, although it can be thoroughly amusing to watch if you're not the one giving it. You can't really edit their work out and, before they notice, sneakily hand it in for submission. I mean, a presentation is a presentation. If your teammate goes rogue mid-prezzo, you better hope that your assessor or your boss really likes what they're doing because otherwise you're going to find yourself up shit creek without a paddle real fast. Now, it's during this royal session that a member of the government went rogue. That individual that went rogue happened to be the king himself. Back in August, Louis had got himself into trouble because he fell asleep. If only he had been asleep in November. Nobody quite knows why Louis went rogue, potentially because he felt that the upcoming vote was going to go against him. Perhaps he was frustrated by the fact that the members of the Parlement were, as entitled, speaking their minds. 
Maybe he was just over this whole charade and felt like reminding everyone that he was, at least in name, an absolute monarch. Whatever the cause, the ramifications are known all too well. Louis went rogue and he did so by interrupting the debate of the judges. In doing so, the king essentially turned this informal séance royale into a formal lit de justice. Making his will known, Louis ordered the Parlement to register the edicts and to do so without delay. As he made his wishes known, no one in the room could quite believe what they were witnessing. It was shocking. The chamber was quite literally flabbergasted. The Duke of Orléans, the king's own cousin, not known to be a man of many words, protested fiercely. He rose to declare that such an intervention was illegal. The king sharply replied, It is legal because I wish it. This revolution is full of examples where one can say, if only King Louis had done X. Sometimes they're big ifs, sometimes they're small ifs. Here, one cannot help but wonder what would have happened if only Louis had kept his goddamn mouth shut. And I mean that in two ways. Firstly, because his impromptu lit to justice offsides the Parlement and kills the compromise deal. Had he let the Parlement be, he may, just may, have secured the funds he needed to address the coming bankruptcy and avoid the revolution altogether, or at least to avoid a revolution in the form that we receive it. The second problem with Louis' impromptu little lit to justice was the PR nightmare it created, specifically the fallout of how the king handled the protest of the Duke of Orléans. Louis handled it disastrously. I'm not talking about him saying, it is legal because I wish it. I mean, that's pretty disastrous enough. The tyrannical overtones are easy pickings for the underground press. But what I am talking about instead is what he did afterwards. In a jokey manner, and with every eye glued to him, Louis stated to the Duke, Oh well, I don't care. You're the master, of course. Absolutism requires the ruler to rule absolutely. Louis once more created the public image of a ruler with no conviction. A ruler with a weak will. A ruler that didn't need to be feared, and one that shouldn't have been admired. Couple such a ruler with the archaic autocratic system in a tumultuous environment, and you've got yourself a recipe for disaster. Having shocked all those around him, Louis left the judges to their deliberations. Pushing the vote in favour of the opposition, Louis' actions left the deal in tatters. Brienne had been so close, and yet now, he was so far. Without hesitation, the obstructionist factions of the Parlement reaffirmed their opposition to the ministry and renewed their demands for an Estates General to be summoned immediately. Once more, tension between the monarchy and the Parlements escalated. The first victim of this escalation was the Duke of Orléans. Having questioned the king so publicly, the Prince of the Blood was swiftly exiled. The king used a mechanism known as a letter de cachet. These letters, signed by the king, were essentially orders that could not be appealed. And so, Louis, in sticking to the tyrannical theme of the week, used them to exile from Paris early on and some of his associates on the 20th of November, the day after the royal session. Over the weeks and months that followed, a war of words erupted between the government and the Paris Parlement. The monarchy proclaimed its divine rights to govern, and the Parlement demanded an estates general to do so instead. As time went on, however, the government's position was becoming less sustainable. The public, the Parlement, and the press were unanimous in their calls for an estates general to be summoned. In a blow to the monarchy's position, the provincial assemblies joined ranks with the opposition. 
Seeing an Estates General as the only solution to the financial crisis, the provincial assemblies, which had been running with a pro-monarchy agenda, decided to join the deafening cries for an Estates General. By April 1788, nothing had been achieved in this war of words. Bankruptcy had crept closer, but a solution had not. The Paris Parlement wasn't oblivious to the fact that the monarchy didn't seem to be giving in. Thus, the judges prepared for a repeat of the suppression that they had experienced in August. In an attempt to insulate themselves from the reprisals the government was clearly planning, the Paris Parlement made a series of announcements in April 1788. The objective of these announcements was to entrench the Parlement's popularity and position. On April the 11th, the Parlement declared that the King's will was insufficient to introduce new laws. On the 29th, the Parlement nullified the edicts permitting some forms of tax collection. The crescendo of declarations was leading up to a final bang. Dies Premenil, leading the conservative faction of the Parlement, declared on the 3rd of May 1788 the fundamental laws of the kingdom. According to the proclamation, only the Estates General had the authority to raise taxes, the Parlements had the right to control new laws, and that their judges were irremovable. Additionally, the letters de cachet were illegal as they violated the rights of Frenchmen and the customs and privileges of the provinces sacrosanct. In short, the declaration was nothing but an affront to the king and the notions of absolutism. The one bone that they did throw to the monarchy was a confirmation that the monarchy was hereditary. The bone was not enough to shield the judges from the backlash brewing in Versailles. Three days later on the 6th, the government responded by arresting Dies Premenil and Gaulard, another member of the Paris Parlement. History repeated itself, however, and once more suppression only acted as fuel for fire. When 900 government troops surrounded the building that the Paris Parlement occupied, the judges refused to hand over their colleagues. They shouted down at the troops, We are all Gaulard. We are all Dies Premenil. You will have to arrest us all. Luckily for the government, they didn't have to lock up everybody. Eventually, the Crown would get its men. The arrests were only the start of the suppression, however. Two days later, Louis XVI, following the footsteps of his predecessor, stripped the rebellious parlements of all their power. The King's Keeper of the Seals introduced a radical new judicial system which neutered the parlements by making it a court for the nobility only. A new court, appointed by the government, would be responsible for registering royal edicts. Just as the moderates had feared, the judicial revolt had resulted in suppression. One question remained. Would the heroes of the nation remain suppressed? Or would the nation fight for their heroes? Thank you for listening to Episode 6, The Revolt of the Parlement. Next episode, we'll be covering the famous Day of Tiles, a chaotic revolt in the city of Grenoble which will have a profound impact on the government's policy. We'll also be covering the evolution of the free press and the return of one of the most popular men in France. Before you go, if you've enjoyed today's episode of Grey History and you're keen for some more, then there is something you can do to help make that dream become a reality. Spread the word. Tell your friends, your colleagues, your PT, the supermarket checkout chick, anyone who you think might enjoy a history podcast that explores the grey. I need all the help I can get, so if you've enjoyed today's show, please tell someone about it. A show for a tell. Anyway, thank you for listening, and have a great day. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.